Well, should we pray? Um, let's pray for um, the war in Ukraine. And just ask, you know, I think there's probably believers on both sides, right? And no, nobody wins. Nobody wins. And it's hard because we pick one side or the other and there's reasons on both sides. And But at the same time, there's believers on, on every side. I, I got good friends that are Russians. Uh, I don't know as many Ukrainians. I happen to know more Russians than Ukrainians. But my heart goes out to both sides. My heart just goes out to the the just the evil of, of war that, that and the what, what's the result of that. And so let's pray and just pray for God's will. Who knows? You know, I think it was in World War II, around Christmas Eve, there was a famous story when the Germans and the, who was the other forces, they, it was a Christmas Eve. They, they laid their arms down, the British and the Germans, they laid their arms down, they got together and they celebrated Christmas together and sang songs and uh, worshipped Jesus. And then they picked their guns up and shot each other at the end. <laughs> But they laid them down, and, and maybe, who knows, by the grace of God, they'll lay them down. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about um, today. I want to address it. I don't want to address it in length because we're going to study Revelation chapter 20 today, and uh, I want to get through our study for today. Um, so we'll pray first, and then I'll have just a couple comments on it, and we'll get into our study. Amen? Father God, we come before you, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for, uh, for our nation, God. We, we pray, Father, first for the United States and Lord, we pray for how we're to respond and for our foreign policies and how our elected officials are to react to these situations and, Lord, that you would give them wisdom. We pray for our president that um, you would give him wisdom in dealing with this and know how to be shrewd and to be wise and, and to make good decisions for the rest of the country, for all of the, the generals and the war cabinets and the councils and, um, Lord, here in the United States that, that, that our, our leadership would um, be blessed by the Holy Spirit and of wisdom and of knowledge and of insight. Lord, we pray for Israel, our um, dearest ally, and just pray same thing over them, God, just blessing over them. Lord, we pray for the Ukrainian people. We pray for the many um, just loss of life already, Lord Jesus, of civilian lives and military lives. And, and Lord, we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will be poured out on the Ukrainian people, the Russian people, Lord God. Father, we thank you that um, there's Christians in Russia, there's Christians in Ukraine. We pray for these, these folks and their families. We pray, Father, for those that, that don't know you in this region. And even in a, in a terrible situation, God, that, that light would come out of it and that people would, would seek you and they would need hope and they would find that hope in Jesus. And, Father, that you would pour out your spirit in just a miraculous way. Lord, I pray that we would understand from your word um, how to respond and how to react. And, Lord, we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, do a little exercise with me, if you would. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, and then, and then stand to your feet, if you would. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, and I'd ask you guys to stand with me and open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, chapter 1. There was a clothing brand that was popular when I was a kid. It was called No Fear. Anybody remember No Fear? Listen, God does not want us to have any fear, okay? What I want to encourage us as a church this morning is to walk in the hope in Jesus. And that in, in any part of your life, and I'm not sure if anybody through what's happening um, with the war in Ukraine and with, with ominous things on the horizon or what we've just come out of and who knows how far out of it we are with, with vaccines and masks and, you know, coronavirus things and other, other things in our, in our world that 
if we respond in fear, I think we're getting outside of the will of God. Now, fear is not always like a terrible um, thing, right? Fear is natural. You, you stop at a red light, you know, because fear motivates you to do that. A healthy fear of God is, is biblical, and we're supposed to have that. But we're not supposed to make decisions out of fear. Because in First Timothy chapter one, Second uh, uh, Timothy chapter one and verse seven, read it with me or look at it with me if you would. It says, "For God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind." Now I want you guys to read that with me together on three, one, two, three. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. One more time, for God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. One more time. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Ruby, feed it. Thank you. I'll tell you just a little side note. Anybody have nightmares? Okay, one person admitted it. Anybody else have nightmares? Bad dreams? Listen, this verse right here is your go-to. If you wake up from a bad dream, I, I used to have them more so. Lydia used to have a lot of bad dreams, and I, don't, I think I don't know what's happened. As we got older, I don't think it's as much of a, a part of our, our, our life as it used to be. But the other, the other night, I had just fallen asleep. Lydia was still awake, and I was probably asleep a half an hour, and I was having this really bad nightmare, and I was freaking. I woke up after about a half hour, and I said, Lydia, I've been having a bad nightmare. So our, 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 our custom is we pray for each other. So she reaches over and half asleep, Lord Jesus, help this moron. <laughs> <laughs> and she she prayed for me and I went back to sleep and I was fine but not, I didn't just go back to sleep I, I begin to quote this verse and I say it out loud and I say God's not giving me a spirit of fear but that of love and of power and of a sound mind God has not given me a spirit of fear but that of love and of power and of a sound mind and, and I've used that you know in, in my life if, if I'm afraid of anything you know and again I, I, I want to be careful because I think like I said there is a place where fear um, you know, you don't you don't get too close to the edge of a cliff because of fear. So th- th- that kind of fear protects you from danger. That that's 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 good. There's a reason for that fear. But but when we make decisions in, in our life because we're afraid of what might or could happen, we can get it into area where we're getting outside of the will of God. Because God has not given us a spirit of fear. And and in in a situation of a nightmare or a dream. I realize that, that that dream doesn't come from God. And then it's not what God wants for me. And so then I just, I just speak God's word over it. God's not giving me a spirit of fear, but that of power and of love and of sound mind. And I'll tell you what, it's helped so much. It just works. You know, and then not only that, as I've done that over the years, I now have very few um, scary dreams, nightmares, less things happen. It just, I just speak that over it. And I say the word, I say the name Jesus out loud too, because the name of Jesus, if there's anything that's, oppressing me or there. They don't want to hear the name of Jesus. And I speak it in power. In the name of Jesus, Jesus be with me. Jesus, 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 Jesus help me. Jesus, I welcome you. Jesus, I need you. And they're saying it out loud. And it works. So again, kind of my kind of encouragement for today was um, let, let's not be afraid of anything. Amen. Pastor Dave had a right on scripture to encourage us this morning that, that when we see these things begin to happen, lift your eyes because your redemption draws nigh. Right? So when, when you see me in Walmart and I'm walking around like this, you're like, what are you doing? You're weird, man. I'm like, no, I'm just doing what Jesus said to do. <laughs> you know? And, but really, honestly, like, you know, in Matthew 24, where we find this scripture, 
Jesus is talking about the last days. The disciples ask him three questions. When will the end come? What will be the last days? What will be the sign of your coming? And he goes through in Matthew 24 and he begins to answer these three questions. And he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple of the rapture, of the end times, of Armageddon. And he's laying it all out, all these bad, crazy things. And then there's like this pause in the end. And now Jesus is going to give us the crescendo. He's going to give us the final answer of what to do when all this terrible stuff begins to happen in our world. And it's at that moment where Jesus says, when you see these things begin to happen, move to Montana, dig a big hole, get guns and food, and prep. And if your Christian neighbors come over because they didn't get food, shoot them in the name of Jesus so you can protect your food. Jesus never said that. It's like, did Jesus blow it? Because this would be the moment where he would tell us what to do when things around us started falling apart. And instead, he tells us to lift our eyes and walk in circles. Like, come on, Jesus, really? That's what he said. Like, he didn't blow it. He doesn't want us to be afraid of anything. He wants us to be encouraged. You know, in the scripture in in 2 Thessalonians, when it's talking about the rapture, Two times right there in that chapter, chapter it says, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. As Christians, it should bring us comfort, right? And so as far as the, the war in Ukraine and your Bible, now the Bible doesn't address it. It doesn't predict it. It doesn't talk about it. And I'll tell you, we, we just studied through on Wednesday nights. Oh, yeah, and by the way, um, we got a good plug from the kids ministry for Wednesday nights tonight. So I got one more. The first Wednesday of every month, we feed you guys for free. So 6.30 this coming Wednesday, um, Carl just texted me, I already forgot, chicken and pizza? Yeah, we're gluten-free. <laughs> oh, because oh, we're gluten-free? Yeah. Okay, we need a gluten-free meal for Wednesday, Carl. Okay, so, um, and if you have any other food allergies, let Carl know. He'll, he'll just spend his whole life making sure you guys get the right diet. Um, so, where was I now? Well, yeah, I was going to tell you to come out on Wednesday nights, but that wasn't where I was going. What? I say what? Oh, yes, yes, yes. We'll get to that. Okay. So anyways, come out. I've been studying. We were studying Daniel on Wednesday nights. And in Daniel, it details in detail all of the power, all of the kingdoms of the world that, that would rule the world. And you go back and you, you put your Bible over your, your history books, and it's exactly, exactly the way that it laid out. And Daniel said it way from the beginning Um, hundreds and hundreds of years before these kings and these nations were even born. And sure enough, right in a row, all the way up um, from the Babylonians, um, conquered by the Medo-Persians, all the way up to the Romans, he he listed in detail exactly who was going to win these wars and battles and conquers and kings by name. But what what we study as we study through Daniel is the Bible gives us all of this history. It doesn't tell us, you know, about the United States and Vietnam. Russia and Afghanistan. Because and there's lots of wars and things that happen in history that the Bible doesn't deal with. Why? Because when, when the Bible is dealing with something, what is the key? What is the, the main factor that the Bible is concerned with? I heard someone say Jesus. That's always a good answer in church. But unfortunately, it's not the right answer right now. Oh, I heard it. It's Israel, right? It has to do with Israel. The wars that have to do with Israel, the battles, the places where Israel is involved, those are the ones that your Bible's going to talk about. So the way we're looking at this biblically is that what's happening between Russia and 
um, Ukraine is not in Bible prophecy. But it's very interesting because the Bible says in Ezekiel 37 and 38, and that's what we are focused on. Ezekiel 37 and 38, I've been through it a bunch with our church, so I, don't, I can't go through it now. But for those of you that may not be familiar, um, in the last days, the days we're living in today, the Bible talks about in Ezekiel 37 and 38 that the ten nations will attack Israel, led by um, Russia, Turkey, Iran, and, and seven other um, what are Muslim nations today. And so we, we've kept our eye closely on Ezekiel 37 and 38. And it says that God is going to put a hook in the jaw of Gog and Magog, which is um, Russia and the ruler of Russia, and he's going to draw them into Israel. And no other nation in the world is going to come to Israel's defense when these ten nations come against Israel, that God is going to supernaturally defend Israel against these ten nations. So possibly what we're seeing biblically is just the beginning of this, of this hook in the jaw of Putin and Russia that eventually will draw them. So again, this, this thing in Ukraine right now with the Russians, it could, it could fade, it could complete whatever it's doing and go away and things could somewhat go back to normal. Or it could escalate. And I think probably one of our biggest natural fears is that what's begun in um, Ukraine is going to develop into World War III. Um, I don't know. I don't really see World War III predicted in the last days other than this Gog and Magog invasion. Not to say there won't be some skirmishes, but unless they have to do with Israel, they're not detailed in our Bibles. But our Bibles does our Bibles our Bible does specifically talk about Russia, Iran, and Turkey, um, and, and and seven other nations that in the last days, the days we're living in, are going to attack Israel. So that's something to keep your eye on. The other thing that we always point out in biblical prophecy concerning these things is a verse in Isaiah 17.1. Isaiah 17.1 says that Damascus, Syria, will be utterly destroyed and, and it will, ne- it will not a- never again be an inhabitable city. So we have war in Damascus, Syria. We've had for the last five years. Parts of Syria, the, one of the major cities in Syria is a city called Homs, Syria. Take, take a Google look at what home Syria looks like today and what it looked like 10 years ago. It'll blow your mind. Home Syria 10 years ago was a thriving metropolis city, looked like downtown New York City. Today it looks like thousand-year-old ruins. And the entire home Syria has been destroyed. And once Damascus Syria is in the same condition that Homs is in today, then Isaiah 17.1 will be fulfilled. And that's coming. And so those are the two things to look at. Now, again, I've already spent too much time on this, you guys. I'm sorry, I got it. I want to finish. Uh, we had a lot to cover, good stuff to cover in Revelation 20. But I'll tell you this. I want to give you some resources. So if you are interested, for those of you that could care less, then I don't need to spend any more time on it. I'll do you a favor. For, the, for those of you that are interested, um, Amir Sarfati. Write that down. A-M-I-R-T-S-A-R-F-A-T-I. Sarfati. Um, this is a Jewish last name, Amir Sarfati. If you go to YouTube and you type in Amir Sarfati, him and uh, one of the Calvary pastors by the name of Barry Sanger did a um, Q&A on Ukraine and Russian war this week. And it's thorough and it covers a lot of perspectives and a lot of good ideas. And so you can, you can watch that if you're interested. If you have questions about um, Ukraine and Russia and then again pertaining to your Bible to biblical prophecy. And so that's some good information on that. Um, Josh wear my white last week. That's what he did. Josh is funny. 
you know, over there. All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 20 today. We'll start with our timeline up on the board. For those of you in the back, I apologize. You can't um, see too well on the stage. But those of you in the back, I know you guys had to get here early to get those seats in the back, right? Yeah. So this is our timeline for Revelation. So where we are today is where this red circle is. But actually, I might cover the what to the right of it. It says Great White Throne Judgment. But this is where we are on our timeline of Revelation, the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. The, the second coming of Jesus, that's what we studied last week in Revelation chapter 19. Jesus returns. Now, Jesus' second coming is synonymous with the battle of Armageddon. Jesus comes back on a white horse. We come back with him. And then if you look at your Bible um, in Revelation 19, (laughs) in verse number 20, it says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who, who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him. So I just wanted to point out as we get into chapter 20, as a reminder, that when the battle of Armageddon happens and Jesus comes back on a white horse and we come with him, this great battle that the world is fascinated with, this word Armageddon, many movies are made about it and um, on all kinds of different directions. But in the actual battle of Armageddon takes place in the Jezreel Valley in, in Israel and in Megiddo. When, when, Jesus does come, when Jesus comes and destroys this army, do you remember he's going to summon all the carnivorous birds of the world to this battle because they're going to eat the flesh? It says the blood will rise to the horse's bridle. It's pretty tall. I don't know how tall a horse's bridle is, but what is a horse's bridle anyways? Like chest area, right? Neck? Mouthpiece? Bridle? Oh, so that's even taller than I thought. I was only giving him credit to the chest. That's... A horse can have to hold his head up so he doesn't get out and drown in blood. But with that detail, we get this little detail here at the end of Revelation 19. And it says that Jesus takes the false prophet and the Antichrist and he throws them first into the lake of fire. They're not killed. They're thrown immediately into the lake of fire. And that is what we'll learn in this chapter is eternal hell. Um, What is hell today is temporary, just like Jesus is going to say when we get to Revelation 21 next week. Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. So the earth we have now, the heaven we have now is temporary. And then for eternity, Jesus is going to create for us a new heaven and a new earth. Hell is the same way. Hell is temporary and we're getting to here the end. And this lake of fire is the eternal hell um, where the, the, false pre, the false prophet and the Antichrist are thrown in. In the end of chapter 20 where we are, he's going to throw Satan into um, this thing as well, and um, and then the rest of humanity whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. All right, that brings us to um, chapter 20. Now, the title of my message today is There is a Kingdom Coming. And I, I, mean, I mean that to encourage you and I that um, there's a kingdom coming on this earth that God is going to create. And, and again, we've been trying to encourage you the last couple of weeks as we've gone through these kind of difficult things to read here in Revelation that, um, that there's, there's, there's hope because this world is not our home. This is not the kingdom of God. This is not what we're looking forward to. And when these terrible things are going on in our world and around us, that God is going to fix it. He's going to set it right. And encouraging us that there is a kingdom coming. And, and, and what's encouraging is that in this kingdom that's coming, we're going to rule and reign with Christ. 
Now this is called, so now um, still on our timeline, we finished the seven-year tribulation period that we've been studying, Revelation 6 through, nobody, 19. Revelation 20, the millennial reign, 21 and 22, a new heaven and new earth. So 20, it talks about when Jesus comes back on a white horse and we and, he, and, he, and the battle of Armageddon um, finishes, that he's going to establish a kingdom here on the earth. Now, Revelation doesn't tell us a ton of details about what's going to happen in this thousand-year reign, but six different times in Revelation 20, he mentions that it's a period of a thousand years. It is kind of sparse details as you go through your Bible. Isaiah, the prophet, actually is probably the has the most wealth of information, little nuggets that tells us. It's in Isaiah that it tells us during the millennial reign that the, you probably heard this scripture, the lion will lay down with the lamb and the child will lead them both, that the snakes will not be harmful, that he'll put streams in the deserts. And, and these things all come out of Isaiah. They're details of what's going to happen. But for a thousand years, Christ is going to come back and here on this earth, he's going to give the earth a facelift because the earth is going to have been completely destroyed during the seven years. If you've been following me, I mean, all of the oceans, the, the, the oceans have turned to blood, the fresh waters, the trees, the, the nuclear wars, the things that have happened. So this earth is going to be messed up after seven years of God's wrath. Well, when Jesus comes back, he's going to put streams in the desert and he's going to redo this earth and he's going to rule and reign here for a thousand years. And there'll be a group of people, a little hard for me personally to figure out how and who comes through this group, but there will be a group of people that survive through the seven years that will enter in the flesh into this thousand year reign of Christ. Then we will be immortal. We will already have received our glorified bodies. And it tells us several places in the Bible that we will come back and we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So we'll be over cities and we'll have jobs and uh, we'll work in the um, Jesus's government and in his um, kingdom. And then people and, and if people can have babies, you know, if you live to be a thousand years, we're going to go back to Adam and Eve. You know, Adam and Eve lived to be over 900 years. We'll go back to that. There won't be death. It says in Isaiah that if if somebody dies at 100 years old in the millennium, they'll say that a child has died. At 100 years old, it's still a child. And, and then, you know, people will be having babies. Imagine, ladies, how excited you are. <laughs> Look at you guys like, <laughs> you know, not, not encouraging again, Pastor Chris. But you could have babies all the way into your hundreds. How many babies could you have when you're 500 years old and you're still having babies? <laughs> Little baby factory. Some of you guys have already got a head start on that. And so the, the, the population will grow. They'll have, and again, you know, I, I, the last movie I think I went to in the movie theater was Immortals. And um, it, was, it was okay. I don't know. There was a scene where it was ancient Babylon. It kind of gave you a cool idea what ancient Babylon might have looked like. But anyways, we're, we're going to be the real immortals. The world knows this and they're fascinated with these things, but they come from what's really true. And that's what a lot of things we see in the world is that it's a spinoff of what's true. But it will be the real immortals. And we'll be there in our glorified body. And then at the end of that thousand years, Satan is going to be released one last time. Now, um, let's go to the next slide, Bri. Um, I, I want to kind of highlight this really quickly. There's several different views regarding Revelation 20 and the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, I'm not an expert on the first two. I'm not really an expert on the one I believe, but 
I know it a lot better. So as I talk about the first two very briefly, if you're amillennialist or postmillennial and I mess up what you believe, sorry, I don't pretend to be an expert on what you believe or what the other views are. It's just kind of a quick side note. Some of you, this is just going to go over your head and it's not going to matter. It's not going to come into play. For some of you, you may follow some of this and care. And so we'll cover it really quickly. But there are basic eschatological views on timing of, of, the, of the return of Christ and, and these things regarding this thousand year. Now, if you never heard this term, but the first term is amillennial. So the, the amillennial class, they believe that there is no millennium, that, that the six times that it says here in Revelation that it's a thousand years. You know, the Bible says Jesus is going to rise in three days. That was three days. You know, it says over and over again all these times, and they're all literal. And then you come to this one, and all of a sudden, it's not literal anymore. I'm already bagging on the ones I don't believe on. I'm just going to tell you about them. But anyways, so no millennium, it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, um, it's, it's not an actual thousand years. They're just symbolic of the church age. The period which we are presently living is the millennium, and Satan is currently bound. And so if you're all millennials and you believe that Satan is currently bound, one of the pastors said that his chain is pretty long. But because Satan is bound here in chapter 20, and if, and if you believe we're all millennials or in the millennium now, then according to what this says, Satan would have to be bound. So that's a part of what they have to believe. It says the tribulation is still to come, after which Jesus will judge the living and the dead, and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Some very um, kind of big names in history have, have, are all millennials. Augustine was, was all millennial in his, in his doctrine. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church in large part is amillennial. Um, some Baptist uh, particular churches hold to this view of amillennialism. And then the second view is um, postmillennial. Next slide. And so postmillennial, I think this one probably carries more weight. I think more people that you would know today, um, the Calvinist, the reform class, John Piper, uh, Francis Chan, um, Chandler, uh, a lot of folks that, that are popular today. Mark Driscoll was in this class are in this post-millennial group. And they believe that Christ returns after the thousand-year reign here in Revelation 20, that a thousand years are seen as literal and should be the time of the great harvest of souls leading up to the return of Christ. So basically, kind of in a nutshell, post-millennialism believes that, that, you know, that, that, that the meek will inherit the earth, that, that we will rule and reign, that, that, that Christians will, in this world now, that will overcome the world, the world will become a Christian world, and that once the world becomes Christian and we got Christian leaders all over the world and the, pre- the prevailing and predominant um, doctrine and belief is Christianity, that Christ is going to win here on this earth, that the gospel is going to go to the whole world, the whole world is going to become Christian, and then after that happens and we're dominating then um, Christ will return at the end of that post-millennial. And again, there's a million things to post-millennialism that I'm not covering today. My Kind of my biggest um, regret with, with amillennial or post-millennial points of view is the tendency often has to be that they do away with Israel. Because when you're post-millennial or you're amillennial, you, Israel doesn't fit into the, um, into the time frames that you've laid out. And so, again, to me, that is a huge no-no, a huge danger. The Bible says, I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you concerning Israel. That promise has never been rescinded. It's valid for today, and I never want to be in the class that's against Israel or doesn't see them as a key player or the apple of God's eye or God's people or the, the bride of Christ as, as well. 
And so, unfortunately, with these two, two views, um, some can, not always, some can tend and lean into anti-Semitism. But whether it becomes anti-Semitic, it still um, takes away the promises that God has given to Israel. And listen, if God, if the whole Old Testament and, and the New Testament is God promising Israel a certain blessing, and then he takes it away, where does that leave you and I? Can we then trust the promises of God? He took them away from Israel. Why wouldn't he take them away from us? God's not going to do that to Israel. He's not going to do that to us. Um, then the third one, uh, third slide. This is, this is what I teach. This is a perspective that I'm going to be teaching that I have taught Revelation from all the way through. It's called premillennial. And basically, in a nutshell, um, Christ returns at the end of the seven years of tribulation, which marks the beginning of the millennial reign. Thus, he returns premillennial. He establishes his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. Believers will rule and reign with Christ during the millennial kingdom. The rapture happens prior to the seven-year tribulation period. So that's kind of the the three in a nutshell. But I I thought it would be uh, important at least to highlight those so you would know as uh, we go through this. Let's look at chapter 20, verse 1. saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid a hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long, y'all? thousand years. Is that a literal thousand years? Or it's just, ah, it's just whatever. You decide. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years, second time, how many years? Thousand years were finished, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. A lot to unpack there, but we'll just go back here to verse number two. So we have this angel who's nondescript, and he lays a hold of Satan. It says he has a chain in one hand. So this angel, who's not even one of the archangels, is not mentioned by name. He only has one free hand because he's holding his big chain in the other one, unless he's an octopus angel or something. And, And he grabs Satan... So I'm just saying Satan is like not even a formidable foe at this point. He grabs Satan with one hand and he he chains him up. And no doubt this chain was like forged in the fires of, you know, Thor's, uh, where they made Thor's hammer or whatever. And and so he chains Satan up in this chain and he throws him into the abuso or the bottomless pit. Now that same abuso, do you remember the the demons when Jesus cast um, the legion into the pigs? They begged Jesus not to throw them in the abuso before their time. It's mentioned in the Bible several times, this thing. Some believe that it's a chamber in the center of the earth. And if you, if you drop something into one side of the earth, as the earth rotates, that it will just forever, all of eternity, would just continue to fall and never be a bottomless pit. But anyway, so Satan is trapped there for a thousand years. And then in verse 3, it says, so that he should not deceive the nations no more. So Satan is there. And he's no, he's no longer allowed to deceive the nations because during this thousand-year uh, reign of Christ, Christ is going to rule. And he's not going to allow the demonic and, and satanic oppression. There'll be no demons on the earth. Now, if Satan is not going to be able to deceive the nations anymore, what is Satan doing today? Understand that, right? That Satan is deceiving the nations today. That you live in a world that is designed by Satan to deceive you. You understand that, right? That you, that you have to use the scriptures to be your filter to understand what is deception and what is truth. And without the truth, without Jesus in your life, without the word of God, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. 
And so to have Jesus as our, as our truth and, and to know that there's, there's a system of deception that Satan is in charge of that he's no longer going to be allowed to do. And then it says, after these things, he must be released for a while. Everybody say, ah. Now, does anybody here ask just the, the question, why? Right? Like, that's the natural response here. Like, you got him. You chained him up. You threw him in a pit. We're enjoying life for a thousand years. Why would you let him out? Now, a um, couple reasons, a couple things we can learn from this. Number one, the Bible says that what's driven into the heart of man, and that the heart of man is decept, deceitfully wicked, and above all things, who can know it or who can understand the deception that's bound up in the heart of a man? And so no matter how well society is, that, that there's still a deception that's going to be there. And then to me, I think it's a much simpler than that. You know, that God has given you and I a choice and a free will. And if you don't have a choice, there's no love and there's no free will. And sometimes I, 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 I share this with people and I think they feel like it really dumbs it down. Like, you know, because why did God allow Satan to have such a loose... Um, chain now and why is he roaming the world and why is Satan allowed to do what he's going to do and, and, and the bottom line is the truth is that's the only way that love is possible it's the only way that choice is possible right because you choose God God has now something when you stand before God and you chose to love a God that you've never seen you put your faith in a God that you believe in because by his spirit you know that he's real and true but you've never seen him and you live your life to love Jesus and to serve Jesus when you stand before him, he can, he can reward you and honor you. But if you never had a choice and you stand before him, having loved him and honored him, what is there to, to reward you for? You know, if my wife loves me and she has a choice whether she wants to love me or not, but, but is it love if I took my wife and I chained her to a bed in the basement? And then I left and I said, honey, I'm leaving for work. Please be here when I get home. And I left for work and I come home. And I'm like, wow, she loves me. She's still here. There's no choice, right? She's chained to the bed. But if I unchain her, you know, and I let her live her life and she's there when I get home, there's a choice. And so, you know, when God, God didn't want to create robots. I love God. He loves me. We are God. I mean, he created something like that. He created dogs for us. I don't care who's, I don't care how terrible of a person you are. I care what kind of thing you've got going on in your life. That dog will love you. And, and the thing is, you know, God, God didn't create pets. He created people with a sovereign, of their own sovereign choice of whether they were going to love him or not. And there has to be a choice. You know, this is something that I don't know intellectually if we can wrap our minds around, but it's, an, it's, it's just the truth. Listen, if, if you have the premise that Jesus um, is the God of heaven. He created the world and all that's in it. He designed DNA. Like, do you think God is pretty smart? Is he smarter than like Einstein? Is he smarter than like, uh, well, what's his name? He just sent some satellites to Ukraine. Elon Musk. If Jesus, when he was here in the flesh, here's the question. Could he have created an intellectual argument that was so sound and so perfect that everybody in his audience would have to believe it? 
could he do that? Could Jesus have spoke to the crowd in such a way that there would be just no, no way they could, they could doubt what he was saying? Of course he could have. He's the God of, created, of heaven who created them. And, and, and yet he didn't do that. Even, even Jesus began in his ministry this thing where it was like he changed his style a little bit and he began to speak in parables. And Jesus taught so much in parables through the Bible. And part of the reason was for that. It was to give those who wanted to believe a choice to believe and those who believed to follow and those who wanted to harden their hearts had the choice to harden their hearts if they liked. And so as Satan is let out of this pit after a thousand years, it says that he's going to go around the world and he's going to lead a rebellion. Now this is the part that baffles my mind. Even more than the why would God let him out is the fact that people are going to follow him. And there's going to be one last rebellion against God. You know, the other thing this is going to do as, as God lets him out is that God is just in all of his um, in all of his judgments. You know, we have an idea right now, and there's a prevailing kind of idea that our environment creates the decisions that we make. Our environment dictates who we are. And so if you put people in a perfect environment, they wouldn't be bad. They wouldn't be evil. They wouldn't sin. You know, we've had... Um, um, LBJ was the one who had this kind of concept and he was the one that, that built the, the ghettos and built the, not the ghettos, but he built the, um, yeah, what's the name of the high buildings, high rises in New York, the projects. He built the projects with this idea that if you give them a, and they were really nice when they built them, that everything would be great. You just put their, fix their environment. But listen, your environment doesn't regulate your what? Your heart. When, when, I, when I got saved, I was in L.A., I was, I was um, coming out of bondage to the world. I was addicted, and, and I was in a bad place. I could have stayed in my house and, and, and stayed high for months because people would be coming to my house, and, and my house was the party house. And it was like I couldn't even hide myself in my bedroom and stay away from the lifestyle I was trying to leave. And, and so I moved out of, out of L.A. and out of that situation. I had to get myself out of a toxic situation. But in those early days of, of, of following Christ, God spoke to my heart really clearly. And he said, you can change your location, but unless your heart changes, you'll be the same person somewhere else. You'll find drugs where you're going. You'll find what you want to do. You'll eventually surround yourself with those same things if your heart doesn't change. And that my heart had to change that, um, you know, and, and, and in that. So, but God is justified. Because what's going to happen is that during this thousand years, it's going to be a perfect society. And people are going to have no excuses. It's not because they were born into with a, and dealt a bad deck of cards. Everything's going to be a perfect. Can you imagine if the world, I tell people this sometimes when they say, oh, the Bible is so bad and, oh, the Bible is this and that. I say, okay, let's just take, forget the rest of the Bible. Just give me one thing. Give me the Ten Commandments. What if the entire world just followed the Ten Commandments. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not murder. Do not covet what your neighbor has. Don't cheat on your wife. Take five of them. Did I miss one? Did somebody else say one they wanted to add to it? Honor your father and mother. They don't got to smack your kids across the mouth anymore because they do what you tell them. Just kidding. I don't do that. I kick them. What would our world be like if, if, if nobody lied to one another? If we didn't covet what our neighbors had? If we didn't steal? What kind of world would we live in? 
There was some movie where it was like everybody, I don't even remember, I was like a kid or something. I, I bring this up sometimes because it was like this society where it was like this golden, perfect society. And no blood had ever dropped on the ground in this place because it was so perfect. And nobody lied and nobody stole and nobody did anything dishonest. And I, I mean, that's what it would be like. Just five of the Ten Commandments. And, and in a world that, that, that's gonna, where Christ is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem in the flesh, um, I think I have another slide coming up next. The last one of the day, I think. Okay, life during the millennial kingdom. Satan's bound for a thousand years. Jesus will rule from Jerusalem as Christians and saved people and other groups that are saved through the the tribulation will rule and reign with Christ. The Bible tells us this in several places. Um, Judgment of the tribulation survivors will happen. It's a time of peace and joy from Isaiah, a time when animals will be tame. We talked about that. Um, A time of longevity where people will live for um, a thousand years, a time of worshiping Jesus in Jerusalem where we will, um, you know, celebrate those things and worship Jesus uh, for a thousand years. But it, there'll be no war. There'll be, um, Jesus will be there in the capital. Maybe the apostles will rule and reign with Jesus in Jerusalem and um, David will be the mayor of Jerusalem or whatever it is, King David. There'll be prosperity for all. I think I heard a stat one time that there's enough money and wealth in the world that every citizen of the world could be a billionaire. Every one of us could have a billion dollars and live happy. There'll be no war, no prisons, no hospitals, no pandemics, no vaccines, no masks, no mental illness, no orphanages, no foster homes, no abortion clinics, no cancer, no disease, no FBI or any other three-letter organization, including the IRS. No miscarriages, no blizzards, no hurricanes, no earthquakes, no drugs, no courts, no divorce, no government, no corruption, no cults. The real defund the police will happen in the millennial reign because there'll be no police, no porn, no sex trafficking, no domestic violence. This is my favorite one. No mosquitoes. My second favorite one. Actually, my first favorite one is the next one. No tomatoes. <laughs> I guarantee you that Jesus loves us. He will not allow tomatoes in the millennial reign. My theory on tomatoes is they cause cancer. Anything that tastes that bad has to cause cancer. There'll be no abuse, no addiction. All education will be Christian education. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, in in Luke chapter 11, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's exactly what's going to happen. This is a prayer for the millennial reign. And this is not even heaven yet. The thousand-year rule and reign of Christ, it's not even heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven, it'll be a perfect world, a perfect society. So to me, again, the most mind-blowing part of this um, is that not that Satan is released, but that people are going to choose to be a part of his rebellion after that time. But you know, for the believers, for us, if you're there as an immortal because you've already been raptured, you've already been to heaven, you've already received your glorified body, 
you know, you, you won't have that option. These are for the, those that are still in the flesh during this time that will have that option. Verse number four with three minutes to go. So we must have a choice, you know, and that's, that's kind of part of the reason for Satan. And then verse number four, and I saw thrones and they sat on them. Judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So any of those groups in verse 4 um, will not inherit the, the millennium or, or rule and reign with Christ. And then in verse 5 it says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So verse number six there says that we will reign with Christ for a thousand years. You know, maybe we could put requests in for what territory we get to oversee in the new earth and the millennial reign of Christ. Do not put in for Kauai, Hawaii, because I've already put in for it and I got it. So that one's covered. But I hear, I hear that... Uh, Yucca Valley's available. <laughs> High Desert, Adelanto, Hesperia, you guys can have those. They're, they're available. The cool thing is if you do get the desert, he says he's going to put streams in the desert. So you'll have rivers in the desert. Um, there, there's a, a, a thing that's happening here in verse 6. And again, it would take me a longer than I have to unpack some of this stuff. So maybe at another time. But the first death, the second death, the resurrection... Here's the skinny. I heard this thing one time, and I, I try to remember. It says, if you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you only die once, unless you're raptured. You guys all got it? We move on? No? You shaking your head? No? If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you only die unless you're raptured. Got it now? If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born, you die unless you're raptured. Okay? So Jesus said you must do what? Be born again. So if you're born only once, you're born in the flesh, and you never get born again, then you go to hell. You die in the first death, your physical death, and the second death that it's talked about here. And the second death is when these folks are going to be sent into the eternal lake of fire as a second death. So the first death is a physical death. The second death is the condemnation into eternal into eternal death. So as Christians, if you're born twice, you'll never face the second death. You're born in the flesh. You're born again in Jesus. You, you become born again. And as you're born again, you may die in the physical flesh, but your spirit will never die um, for all of eternity. Amen? It's 1128. All right, worship team, come on up. We're going to have to... We're going to have to see the satanic rebellion and the great white throne judgment. I'm not going to be able to cover those in two minutes. We'll try to pack those in um, next week of 21. But if I tried now, you guys, we'll never get out of here. Maybe you guys have had enough. You guys get a steak today or not? Like, no, that was like flat meat. Was it milk? Did you get a steak today or not? So I'll keep going if you didn't get a steak yet. We'll, um, we'll cover the, uh, there's, there's a lot. You guys read ahead in that. 
You know, last week we talked about the invitation to to supper, the great supper of the Lamb, or to be supper. And for those of us that are at the, the, the great supper of the Lamb, that we will go into eternity. And what we're going to see next week, and what I was going to end with here is that, um, if I got to it, is the great white throne judgment is a judgment for non-believers. And it says, for all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, they were cast into the eternal lake of fire. And it's pretty simple. Through the book of Revelation, as we've read through the book of Revelation, this term, this idea of the, the Lamb's book of life is repeated so many times through Revelation with the encouragement for you to know that you know that you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And you know, if I ask you today, if you died today, are you going to go to heaven? And, and, and if your answer is, I hope so, or I think so, it's probably not so. Because as, as, a, as a Christian, and listen, as a Christ follower, there's only one um, religion, and religion is not even a right word anymore. Religion is like a bad word, but there's only one system by which you can know that you know that you know you're saved. Under any other religious system in the world, under any other ism, cult, schism, idea, there, there's, there's works that you have to do in order to earn your salvation to add to what God has done. And so I've been at the deathbed of a Jehovah Witness when they died who, who, who lived their whole lives in this works-based system that I have to work so much and then meet God halfway and they don't die with peace. This person was in agony because they just weren't sure if they had done enough to earn their half of salvation. But in Christ, in relationship with Jesus, in having the name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, we understand that we have no responsibility as far as works are concerned. You know, hell that we're going to study and see next week, Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that hell was created for the devil and his angels. It wasn't created for you and I. But unfortunately, people are going to go there and then we'll see in the next chapter where they do because their names were not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But there's nothing that we can do to earn or to improve All we do, the Bible says, is that we put a faith in Jesus. In Acts 16, it says, Trust and believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. In Romans, it says, Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Works is something that we do after we get saved. It's something that we do to reward. And we're supposed to do works. James said, um, Faith is dead without works. And as Christians, we're called to works. But we just have to understand works is not what saves us. As soon as you say, I have to do anything, you're taking away from what Jesus did on the cross for you. And Jesus paid a brutal, terrible death on a cross for you to be saved. And when you say, that's not enough, I have to do this, you take away from the free gift that God's word promises you. It's It's a gift that God is offering you. And you receive it and you believe it by faith. And you receive the Lord Jesus and the blood of Jesus Christ, it tells us in 1 John, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. And we're washed clean. And when you stand before the God of heaven, it says that your your robe is white as snow. And when God sees you, he sees his son because you have Jesus in your heart and your life. And he's fond of his son. And then he says to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. I want to give everybody that opportunity today. I want you to know that you know that you know that you're born again.
And again, if I asked you right now, if you died today, will you go to heaven? And if your answer is not unequivocally, positively, yes, I know. You know, I've had people accuse me of being arrogant because I said that I know that I know that I know I'm going to heaven. And I told them it's not arrogance. It's just just simply I can read. And I read in the Bible where it tells me I have an assurance of salvation in Jesus. And outside of Jesus, you, you don't get that. No, no other system in the world. Prove me wrong. Show me one. In any, any other religious system, any place where there's an assurance of salvation outside of the faith in Jesus Christ. But in Jesus and in the word of God, it says we can know that we know that we know. And so I want to give you that opportunity right now to say yes to Jesus. So let's close our eyes, bow our heads. And if you're here today and you want to get your life right with Jesus, I want to lead you in a sinner's prayer. And listen, the prayer doesn't save anybody. But a heart that surrenders to Jesus 100% saves you. And so if you pray this prayer and you mean it from your heart, God will absolutely save you. And you will be taken from darkness and brought into the light this morning. The angels of heaven will rejoice over your conversion, over your commitment of faith, your confession of faith. So if that's you today, I just want you to pray a simple prayer with me, but I want you to mean it in your heart because God can see past the words that are coming out of your mouth and he can see through to your heart. And if this is in your heart, pray this prayer with me. And I'm going to ask the church family to join us as we pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I need a savior. I want to be saved. I want my name written in the Lamb's book of life. So I ask Jesus into my heart. I give Jesus my life. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I repent. Pray that you'd wash me clean in the blood of Jesus. I believe in my heart that Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. And I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's worship the Lord together.